We're going to go ahead and get started for this morning because we're at uh, 9 a.m. Uh, so, welcome back for um, our final day, sadly, of George. Um, a couple of quick updates for today. We have a few handouts that will be going around. Uh, one, George mentioned yesterday, this is the tentative, um, a tentative list of some of the courses that Regents offering next summer up in Vancouver. Um, so, if anyone is interested in checking those out, we'll pass those around. Um, I also, a few of you have asked about the handout from Wednesday night for the lecture that George did. Uh, we printed out extra copies of that, so if you want one, if that's here, um, you can grab a copy of that before you head out today. Um, also, and importantly, we're going to be sending out a feedback form in the next, sometime in the next week and a half. Uh, Carl and I are working on this with the folks at Regent um, to kind of make it a collaborative process. But that is absolutely vital for us because this is the first year we've done this. Um, we hope this becomes a, a consistent annual offering. Um, yeah. And so we really value, like we really, really value feedback. Um, that's kind of our best way of knowing uh, what went well, what to improve, what to tweak. Um, so if you'd be willing, you'll get that in an email from Carl and I. Please take the time to fill that out. Uh, we'll, we'll make it detailed but not too lengthy. It may come from Regent, from Patricia. That's, yeah, that's true. Very likely will come from Okay. Um, and we're, we're going to try to keep that on one form, so it'll be integrated with our stuff, but also regional stuff. Um, I have a question. Is yeah, the vision to teach a different class every time, or is the vision to get more and more people to take Hebrew? Oh, good I question. think we ought to get more and more people to take Hebrew. <laughs> 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 I, I think the vision would be that, that just as at region, we would rotate through a, a wide variety of topics. And, uh, and so wouldn't it be great if this grew and you know, we had various opportunities, but yeah, I think not probably biblical books would be consistent, but maybe also on history of spirituality and yeah. a variety of things like that. Both are good visions. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Thank you, Fred. Yeah. So that's, I mean, to your point, Ellen, several of us that have kind of helped organize this, the local churches that have uh, helped sponsor will get together in the, the next weeks to kind of process and think about next year. So uh, y'all's feedback is a big part of that. We'll, we'll be kind of weighing that as we look at the future. Um, also, audio, we've been recording this week, um, and so it's going to take a little while to edit that and have those set up. We did tragically miss yesterday on the audio, so George and I are going to try to maybe splice some other talks together to fill that in, but we will be making the audio available, um, so if you want to um, go back and you know, remember the talks from this week, um, that'll be available in a few weeks down the road. Um, I think that's all I have. Does anyone have any housekeeping questions before we get started today? Great. Well, George, is, it's yours. All right. It takes a, a great deal of um, effort to put on these kind of events. So can we see the hands of those who actually are on staff here at the study center in the room? Can I see the hands of those real high? And Matt's been kind of a lead on all of this, and Madison's been involved. Would you just show your appreciation for them? <laughs> They have been wonderful, wonderful hosts. It's been very easy to be here, and uh, it's been a been a lovely, lovely week for me. So it's been a real gift to be among you this week. And uh, you're just an easy group to teach. Uh, you're interested. You are interesting people. Uh, diverse group, and it's been a delight just to be able to to hang out with you and and uh, talk through a, a book that I'm still very passionate about um, after all these years. So. Um, let's start with a word of prayer this morning, and then we're going to get right back to 
Hebrews and, and jump in. And we actually have the luxury today of kind of an open-ended ending. So we'll see kind of how far we get. I, think, I don't think we'll have a problem getting through what we're uh, designed to get through today. Um, that's not the Lord, then just hang up. So um, I just, I heard someone say that once, and I, I love that line. So, uh, that's right. Yeah, uh, put your, put your phones on stun there. Uh, but um, no, it's, it's, it really has been a, been a delight um, to be with you this week, and, and uh, just really appreciate your involvement. As you know, when you teach, and we have a number of, of professors in the course, uh, students in some ways make, make a class. Um, if you don't have interested students who are engaged, it doesn't go very well for anybody. So uh, you, you've just made this week easy, and uh, really appreciate that very much. So let's have a word of prayer uh, together and, um, and see if we can get started. Father, we thank you very much for your mercy to us. We thank you that because of what our Lord Christ has done, we can step right into your presence with confidence and know that we are decisively forgiven because of his sacrifice for us. Lord, we uh, thank you for the joy today of being among people who um, are wonderful people. We thank you for the joy of being able to have space in life to open our lives to your word. We know that there are many people in the world today who are having to work under egregious uh, circumstances and life is a burden for them. And yet, Lord, we have the luxury today to sit and talk and think and uh, dialogue and enjoy one another. And Lord, we, uh, we are just grateful. We thank you for the gifts of this day. And I pray that as we go through this last movement that we're to cover in this class, pray that, Lord, you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would help me to be clear, that you would uh, help everyone in the room to listen well and to understand. And Holy Spirit, we invite you just to teach us all this morning as we uh, open our lives to you and to your word. We pray especially that you would bring it home to real practical uh, things that we can embody uh, as we try to live for you in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Okay, we have, uh, we have been uh, moving our way through the Christology of Hebrews. And today we come to chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, which is kind of the final main movement of that Christology. We have uh, talked about a number of things uh, here with the book as it has gone along, and we've seen that in this latter section of the Christology that begins with 8.3, really, we saw the little transition in 8.1 and 2, and then with 8.3 and following, the author moves to the superior ministry of Jesus as high priest, and at the center of that ministry is his superior offering for sins. So you'll remember that in chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, he talks about the superiority of the new covenant itself. And then he moves from that in chapter 9 to giving us an overview of the old covenant worship in order to then, in 9-11 and following, unpack the three primary ways that Jesus' offering is superior to the old Levitical offerings. 
superior in terms of place. It's in heaven rather than the earthly tabernacle. It's superior in terms of blood. It's not the blood of goats and bulls. It's the blood of the very Son of God Himself. And it is uh, perpetual uh, in the sense that it, it's not something that has to be... Once it's done, His sacrifice was done. It was a done deal. It was final over against the, the perpetual nature of the Levitical sacrifices that had to be made over and over and over again, year after year after year. And so what the author is going to do as we move into chapter 10 is bring a lot of those threads together in a very interesting way. We have one of the most interesting uses of the Old Testament uh, in the book of Hebrews uh, that we're going to look at here in just a moment and try to get our heads around what the author is doing with that. Uh, but, but all of this is moving to a crescendo uh, where he is he's just uh, emphasizing the various ways that this thing that Jesus has done for us is amazing. It is something that should be life-altering in the way that we think about it. Um, in fact, what I would say is when I was grappling with this part of the book back when I was writing this commentary... Uh, with the with the issue of guilt, for instance, I looked at uh, where the New Testament talks about believers in Jesus being guilty, and you cannot find it. Uh, that not not guilty in the sense of just you know being people who live in guilt. Now you still have the dynamic of when I sin against somebody else, sin against a brother or sister in Christ, sin against my wife. I do need to repent and ask them for forgiveness. So you still have a horizontal working out of the relationship. And I would suggest that we still come to God. Uh, someone was asking me the other day about praying the Lord's Prayer. You know, do we still say, forgive us our sins or our debts or trespasses um, as, you know, we forgive those uh, who have trespassed against us? Do we still pray that? My answer to that would be Yes. Uh, because we, again, are linear beings. We, we are moving through life. We do sin. We need to work out relationships. We grieve the Holy Spirit at times because of the things that we do. And we, therefore, need to ask for forgiveness. But the difference is we ask with great confidence in the established relationship that is not going to change. So we, we come to God as Father who... The forgiveness already has the forgiveness there. There's no question that the forgiveness is already there. So I ask not begging for something that I may or may not get. I come and I ask as a child in order to just to maintain the relationship in an ongoing way. Does that make some sense? Sure. Yeah. So it's not it's not that I'm coming with with some question about whether or not God is going to forgive me. The, the forgiveness is just already there. Yeah, Jean. And I would almost say that you're almost preaching the gospel to yourself because that is the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's reminding yourself of the gospel. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there's a great there's a great confidence in that. Mm-hmm. Not a presumptuousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about that as well. That the presumptuousness would be if I say, well, then I can live however I want to. Uh, I think if if you can approach the the magnificence of what God has done on our behalf. I mean, the, the, the astounding graciousness of God in decisively 
dying for us to forgive us for our sins. I mean, you can approach that by saying, well, that means I can sin however I want to. Then you are, you are manifesting something about yourself that is very twisted. It's, it's very upside down spiritually. Uh, and, and very frightening spiritually. So, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that as we go along. The purpose then of this uh, passage in chapter 10 verses 1 through 18 is it expands the argument that the son's sacrifice was superior and especially is focusing on this part of the uh, point that the author has been making that it was once for all time. It was once for all time. It was made once and never has to be made again. The way that he unpacks this is he uses various forms of midrash. Midrash. Now, Again, Midrash is not a, you know an itchy spot on the on your tummy. Uh, this is this is uh, this is commentary. Midrash is commentary. Uh, it is it is a, a author taking a passage of scripture and then unpacking it and kind of walking through it. You see this throughout the New Testament. This was common in the rabbis. Uh, in fact, in the rabbinic literature, if you go and you look at the, the the Talmud, uh, one of the Talmuds, for instance, then this is this is a pattern that was common in the days of Jesus, where they would take a passage of scripture and then they would they would dialogue about what this might mean or what the implications would be, kind of unpack it. That that's a form of, of midrash and dialogue. The difference when Jesus came was he didn't simply keep appealing to other rabbis. What Rabbi Hillel says this, and Rabbi so and so says this, Rabbi so and so. Jesus just came and said, "This is the truth." This is the interpretation that's the right interpretation. And that's why you have at the end of the Sermon on the Mount people saying he preaches with authority. Not like, not like the other teachers do. He just he speaks with authority when he speaks. Okay, So um, it's, it's a form of unpacking. And we're going to see that he really, really, really focuses in on kind of logical, even the arrangement of the Old Testament text that he's dealing with. He's going to kind of point out some things about that that we will see. All right, so let's let's kind of begin talking through uh, the passage together and see if we can can make some sense of what the author is uh, is doing here. So let's read this uh, first four verses, which kind of lead up to the quote he's going to do. Let's read this out loud together. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of those realities. It can never perfect the worshippers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshippers, once purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, let's think about this together. He starts by saying, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come. This is the term that we, we said earlier, people in the past have interpreted as Platonic, because you know Plato did talk about the, the, uh, the cave and the shadows in the cave and this kind of thing. But notice that the orientation of this passage is temporal and it's moving from the Old Testament era to the New Testament era. That's not Platonism. That's, that is something else. It's Jewish apocalyptic. Uh, you have this concept of 
uh, topology that we've talked about already this week where you have certain institutions in the Old Testament that are foreshadowing a fulfillment that would come later and they have a greater fulfillment. We didn't have time to talk about this the other night at the lecture, but uh, John's Gospel is super big on the fact that Jesus uh, came and in his ministry he fulfilled a lot of the institutions that you have in Judaism uh, in the Old Covenant era. He came and just filled those even more full of meaning. For instance, you take something like the temple and you look at uh, the dialogue on the temple in John 2 where Jesus, it's, a, it's kind of a controversial moment it, right there in John's Gospel. He places it up front and center in his Gospel, I think, for theological reasons. There's some debate about, well, could Jesus have cleansed the temple both at the beginning and the end of his ministry? That's possible. But John seems to arrange things at times to make a theological point. And uh, that passage where Jesus, in essence, says, uh, destroy this temple and I'll build it again in three days. Um, it scandalizes the people who are there because they say, look, this, this, we've been building this thing for a long time. Herod the Great, 20 years uh, you know, prior to the uh, birth of Christ, not quite that long, I think it was 1920 B.C., something like that, but he started this process of the rebuilding uh, and, and expansion of the Temple Mount. Uh, and, and Herod the Great was an amazing builder. So what Herod did with the temple, he took this little temple on a hill and, and there were valleys on e each side of, of Mount Zion. He filled those valleys in to raise them up and make the Temple Mount area that we know in the ministry of Jesus, which was three football fields by five football fields. It was the largest public space in the ancient world. The largest public space in the ancient world. It was the glory of Judaism. As you approach uh, Jerusalem, you could see uh, the top of the, of the temple shining from the gold that was, was radiating out as the sun hit that. And uh, it, was a, it was the glory, it was the glory of Judaism. And can you imagine that Jesus then says in Jerusalem, well, destroy this and I'll rebuild it. I mean, it would be comparable to somebody today showing up uh, out in front of the, the White House uh, shouting, Blow it up! Blow it up! I mean, think about that, really. This is, this is the place that is the political, religious center of the entire Jewish world and Jesus has started talking about it being destroyed. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal. But his disciples later understood in light of the resurrection that what he was actually talking about was not the physical temple. He was talking about his body. And so what you have is Jesus replacing uh, the physical temple initially with his own body as the locus of the place where sins could be forgiven. Think about that. I mean, the temple was the place, the epicenter of the Jewish world where sins could be forgiven through sacrifice. And so what Jesus does is He comes and He transforms that and says, in, in a sense, the ultimate thing that God would be doing was be, would be a new kind of temple. It begins with His body becoming the temple, the locus of the presence of God on earth, that being the centerpiece of what's going on there. 
his, the, the centerpiece of sacrifice and all of that, when he gets to John 14, uh, he then starts saying, you remember when he says, I go to prepare a place for you? I think what he's talking about is the church as the temple. He's not talking about a heavenly mansion of gold and, and this kind of thing. And we don't have time to go into it. There's been scholarship done on this where all the language of remaining and abiding is used of God in those passages. And the idea is that God would then have a place and we would have a place in that place as a part of the temple of God and it would be a dwelling place for God Himself. So the think about the brilliance of this and you're, you, you folks are just getting me way off track this morning. <laughs> Think about the brilliance of this, and then we're going to move on. But, but this is this is a beautiful picture of the of the of the shadow over against the full blown thing that God would do. Think about it when when God recreates the temple, and it's no longer a physical structure that you have to go halfway around the world to go to the to the to the locus of the presence of God in the world, the place where God meets planet Earth. Now God has transformed the temple into his people, his new covenant people who can be indwelled because their hearts have been transformed and cleansed from sin. And now, it's not that you have to go around the world to find the, the real locus of the presence of God. Guess what? The temple spread throughout the whole world so that now the very dwelling place of God is in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And it's in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And it's in uh, Qingdao in China. It's all over the world. It spread all over the world so that God's presence would fill the whole earth under the new covenant in terms of God indwelling the temple. Do you see how then the old temple structures, even the tabernacle, were just a, as the author would say, they were a shadow of the good things to come. Shadow of the good things to come. The, the sacrifices themselves were just a shadow. They were, they were a pointer. They were hints in the direction of what God ultimately would do. They had their purpose in their time that was, that was vital, but one of their purposes was to highlight what God ultimately would do at the culmination of the ages in Jesus Christ. Okay, So he says they are a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of those realities. In other words, there is a correspondence between the the Old Covenant uh, institution and what Jesus would do in the New Covenant. There's a correspondence, but it's not the same thing. It's something that's profoundly new and different. So uh, they're just a form of those realities. They can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices. They continually offer year after year. Remember that perfection in Hebrews is... God getting us to the place that He wanted us to be. Perfection is not, I was flawed and then I became perfect, because the book also talks about Jesus being perfected through sufferings. So perfection is not the idea of something being flawed and then being, being made without flaws. What he's talking about is perfection is the idea that you get fully fitted out, you get fully equipped uh, or, or enabled to be where God wants you to be. And if you think about that in terms of relationship with God, you are being enabled to have this face-to-face relationship with God as a priest. We're going to see when we get to 1019, the altar's going to say, we now have confidence to enter the holy place. 
through the blood of Jesus. Alright? So he's, he's fitting us out, if you will, as priests and getting us to the place where we are able to function in, in our relationship with God and uh, mediating relationship with other people. I mean, reaching out to other people uh, in the gospel. Alright? So, that's the idea of perfection. Now, look at verse 2. He's, he's doing a logical move here. This person is very smart. He's writing the book, and he's, he's going to make some logical arguments as we move through this section. He says, Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the, since the worshipers, once purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? In other words, if those old covenant sacrifices have been able to get people where they needed to be, then they would have understood that they had a relationship with God, that that was taken care of, that was a done deal, that their impurity was not uh, standing between them and God. But he says, built into the very system of sacrifices having to be made over and over and over and year after year after year after year, uh, built into the system is a clear picture of the fact that these sacrifices could never get us to a place where our sins were decisively dealt with. Because you had to keep coming back over and over and over again. We can talk more about the implications of that in Christian theology um, if, if you want to in, in a few minutes when we get to kind of some application stuff. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And what he means by that is to take away sins permanently or decisively. Right, uh, the bulls and goats could deal with sins, you know, to maintain people's relationship with God under the old covenant. He's not saying that they were completely ineffective. He's just saying that they can't decisively deal with sins in a sense of taking taking the problem of sin away. All right, that's in, that's what he's talking about there um, in context. All right, do you have any questions about that before we move on and look at this very interesting use of the Old Testament? It's one of the most difficult uses to kind of unpack and deal with, but we'll see if we can make some progress with that. Do you have any questions about uh, what we've already talked about thus far? Yeah, Matt? Just kind of curious. Would you say that the author of Hebrews, that the way he like talks about and understands the law and the Old Testament institutions of it, is pretty much identical with Paul? Or would you say Paul has like disappointment Paul Oh my goodness. Wow. What one, one of the one of the one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest issue in New Testament studies over the past thirty or forty years has been the, the whole topic of Paul and the law. It's a huge, huge area. So um, I would not say that, that Hebrews approaches the law identically with Paul, but there certainly are some correspondences. Uh, you know, what I was just saying is that the law couldn't get us there, and that certainly is a is a key theme in Paul. Paul basically says in Galatians, for instance, that the law is there as a tutor. You have to read Galatians in light of the cultural context that he's dealing with. You have to deal with it's it's Jew and Gentile relationships that's put forward in Galatians. But what Paul's uh, clear on in Galatians and Romans is that one of the problems of the law is it simply cannot get you to where you need to be. It just, it just never was designed to be able to do that. Uh, and so one of the things that he's dealing with is when people then kind of um, 
deal with the law from the standpoint that this is the this is the centerpiece of what it means for me to uh, to consider uh, what is worthwhile in relationship with God. Paul would then say that's problematic. Uh, John Barclay has written a, a wonderful book. If you want to go to some more, uh, it's kind of a you know it's an academic book, but it's an excellent book called Paul and the Gift. And uh, he's kind of sorting out the concept of grace. And one of the things he points out is you did have, in one understanding of grace in the Jewish world at this time, you did have the, uh, an understanding of, of merit being very, very important. For instance, you don't give grace to people who don't deserve it. In one, in one strand of Judaism, because you kind of mess up the world if you do that. We go around giving grace to people who don't deserve it. It's going to kind of throw the world out of out of sync. That's just one of, of about six different ways that grace is is developed in Jewish thought in in the first century. Um, but but what Paul is dealing with certainly is that the law the law never was intended to give life uh, to be able to bring about transformation. Um, and and so that very much parallels what Hebrews is saying here is that it was just meant to be. Uh, shadow a shadowy anticipation of what what would come about eventually. Yeah, Jean. I always find in parenting a helpful tool for me was always to t- kind of help my kids to see that the law was never meant to save you, but it was it was helpful to because um, you know we're we're human we're finite so it almost was set up to help me realize that I needed a savior because we're so works oriented that you almost have that infrastructure where the, the rules are there, so you you can't help it, you just try so hard to do it yourself, and then you realize, oh, I fall short, I will fail, because you cannot keep the law. And then, so then you realize, oh, I can't keep the law, there's no way. In fact, we make rules to try to keep the rule of the rule, and then you... And so you become a Pharisee and a Sadducee. And then you realize you're just, you, it's, it's such slavery and bondage. So then you realize, oh my goodness, I do need a Savior. And then that's, it actually what it's supposed to do is then turn you, it's supposed to break you actually. And then, so then you, then you turn to the Lord. So, but, but again, then it also does then sift out a rebellious spirit. Yeah. And then, so it really does sort of sift out who that person really is, um, and that's what you then have to deal with, I guess. Yeah, yeah. and one one thing that I would say is I think, um, you know, I'm not going to go there because just on. <laughs> okay, uh, all right. So let me uh, let me kind of help us to move on to the to the next point. But um, yeah, so his his point is that that the sacrificial system just wasn't going to be effective in ultimately getting us to where we needed to be. Now, when he comes to this next bit, he's going to move to an Old Testament passage here that he is quoting. And um, the way that he unpacks Psalm 40 is very, very interesting. So let's, let's read this together, and then I want to kind of walk us through some of the dynamics that we have related to, um, to Psalm 40. Uh, let me just read, I'll read it for us this time. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, this is the quote, 
It is written about me in the volume of the scroll, I have come to do your will, God. After he says above, you did not want or delight in sacrifices and offerings, which also is a part of the quotation, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law, he then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay, uh, several things here. First of all, therefore, as he was coming into the world. Uh, you may not remember this, but back in, in chapter 1, he says, uh, as he's introducing another quote, when he sends the firstborn into the world, your translation says, uh, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, back in chapter 1, he's not actually talking about the incarnation there. He's not talking about the birth of Jesus. The word for world in that place is the Greek word oikumene. And oikumene is not referring to the physical world that we know. It's, it's the heavenly world. He's going to use that, that language again in chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, uh, not to angels has he submitted the coming world concerning which we are speaking, which is talking about the heavenly world. So there, what he's talking about is the exaltation of Christ back into the heavenly world, the heavenly realm, and all the angels bowing down at that point and saying, yes, you are Lord of the universe. Okay? Here, though, it's a different word for world. It's the word cosmos. So now he's talking about when Jesus comes into the world, when he becomes embodied in flesh, becomes a human being, adds full humanity to his deity, when he comes into the world, he, in essence, embodies this passage from Psalm 40. And says, and notice the scriptures on the lips of the Son now. The Son is speaking this psalm. You did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. Now, let me tell you several things about this, give you a little bit of background, and then, uh, then talk about it. Psalm 40 is a psalm of David. It falls roughly into two movements. Talking about the Old Testament context here, the original context of the psalm. The first is in chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, where he's praising God for his good gifts and proclaiming the psalmist's desire to do God's will. The second part of the psalm, in chapter 40, verses 12 through 17, the psalmist is seeking God's help in a time of great need. So what the author of Hebrews does is he focuses... Uh, on two points from the first half of this psalm that together convey the message of submission to God's will and saying that that's even more important than uh, offering sacrifices. You have this strand in the Old Testament where you have places that it is emphasized sacrifices are important. Sacrifices are important. But they're not as important as a heart submitted to God. Do you remember when Saul, Saul was uh, waiting on the battle and uh, tried, waiting for uh, Samuel to, to come and to bless and to offer sacrifice and do all this kind of stuff. And because Saul just had a very shallow heart, he ends up saying, well, let's, let's get on with this. We've got to do this because you know people are kind of 
fading away and going back home, and I've got to keep my, my folks here. So he goes ahead and he offers a sacrifice, and then the prophet comes and says, what in the world have you done? And that whole narrative there moves to a point where Saul is confronted, and the prophet in essence says, sacrifice in and of itself is not as important as obedience. As a, as a heart that is submitted to God. So that's what this psalm is picking up on. When it says, uh, sacrifice for sins you did not desire, what he's saying is that more fundamental than sacrifice is a heart that is submitted to doing the will of God. If you don't come with that, then your sacrifices mean nothing. That's the idea. Okay. So, the author here is saying, he's reading this psalm messianically, and he's saying you see this embodied in the person of Jesus. So that when Jesus comes into the world, in the words of the psalm, he says, you did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You prepared a body for me. Now, if you go back and you read the Old Testament version of this psalm, uh, this is expressed in different ways. That you dug ears for me, you dug ears for me, or something like that. In the textual tradition, like the, the Hebrew Old Testament, Greek Old Testament, the way Hebrews is here, there's, there's a lot of turbulence in the text, we would call it, uh, here at this point. I think what is going on when he says, you prepared a body for me, it's kind of a paraphrase of this idea of digging ears. Whether you understand the ears being dug out for somebody to be able to listen real carefully to the instructions, <clears throat> or the idea of a slave actually having their ear pierced. You remember that in the Old Testament? Uh, so that they would say, I am now going to serve this person from now on. You know, um, that kind of submission of life. However you understand the imagery here, I think the idea is one of the body, you have the embodiment of a commitment to the will of God. You have a, an embodiment of the commitment to the will of God. Someone, in essence, laying down their life, putting themselves on the line and say, God, if it even costs me my life, I am yours. Whatever it costs me, whatever it costs me, I come and I bow before you because you are the center of the universe. I am not. You know, I'm saying that from the human standpoint. And what Jesus does is He leads the way in that for us. Uh, the way Philippians 2 says it is uh, you know, that Jesus came, He emptied Himself, and He took on the form of a servant. And He is the one who uh, is obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's the extent of His obedience. And then Paul says in that hymn in Philippians 2, Wherefore God also highly exalted Him, and gave him a name which is above every name. So what Jesus does is he gives us an image and a picture of someone who comes and pours out life and lays life absolutely before the Father and says, Father, yes, whatever, whatever you ask, my level of obedience, my level of submission to you is to come to you and lay my life before you and say, yes. Uh, I, I heard years ago a, a wonderful... Story, a true story, I, I believe, where a guy had gone to um, a black church in the South. And I, by the way, one of the things that I miss about Southern culture is I miss black culture. 
we don't have southern blacks where I live. <laughs> and uh, I had a lot of friends who were black, and there's a, a distinctiveness about uh, aspects of, of black culture, especially black worship, um, that I, I, really, I really miss. I miss uh, aspects of, of that culture. And this guy had gone, uh, he'd not been to a black church before, and he went and he sat down near the front of the church and just was wondering what was going to happen. And the pastor came out and sat at the piano and started playing and just, just very quietly saying, Yes, Lord, yes. Yes, Lord, yes. And then a lady in the congregation picked, picked up and started saying, Yes, Lord, yes. And, and after a while, the whole congregation just had this kind of you know, hymn of uh, cacophony of, of just submission to the Lord. Yes, Lord, yes. And they came, came and everything suddenly quieted down and the pastor said, Lord, you have heard our answer. Now you tell us what it is you want us to do. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful story? But I think that that is, uh, I think that that is the essence of what Jesus does, what the, the paradigm He gives us in coming to this point of submission where he says, a body you have prepared for me. As Jesus came and, and gave him his whole self all the way to the point of death on a cross uh, in order to accomplish the will of the Father. To accomplish the will of the Father. And we follow him in that paradigm in the sense that we too, it's part of what it means to become a Christ follower. is to come to, to God and say, Everything that this will cost me, I lay, I lay my life down before you and I give this to you and I say yes, whatever it is that you're asking of me. Uh, Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. He, uh, he says all of those things that he would have considered great worth in his former life, all the family connections and the, you know, his, his religious uh, aspirations and all the things that he had in his identity, he says, I, I, in a sense, I consider those as rubbish in comparison to the value of knowing Christ my Lord. Now, he's not denigrating, he's not denigrating his Jewishness or his religion or any of that kind of stuff. He's not denigrating it. But what he is saying is that he, is, he considers that in terms of, of the comparison worth he considers it as, in effect, rubbish in comparison with knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so um, that's what is, is kind of the sense of what's going on here. He says, uh, as you read the psalm, it first says, you did not want to sacrifice an offering, you did not delight in a whole burnt offering. Then I said, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll, I have come to do your will of God. Now, originally, this was a, a kingship kind of psalm, the context was the idea of the king being submitted to the will of God as a, as a key aspect of kingship. Uh, but the way the author is reading this is this is embodied beautifully in the person of Jesus himself. After he says above, you did not want or delight in sacrifices, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law, he then says, notice that he's even picking up on the order of the words in the psalm. He's doing uh, a bit of literary analysis here, if you will, George. Uh, so he says, he first in the psalm said this, and then he said this. So he's taking that as kind of a, a progression of, of what's going on here. Um, he says he takes away the first in order to establish the second. 
So he's saying we see when we read this in light of Christ, we understand that ultimately God's point was never ultimately to just have sacrifice be the focus of everything. It was ultimately a submission to the will of God. And Christ was able to accomplish that in his, in his death. He embodied that sacrifice uh, as a form of submission and it, in effect dealt with the old covenant sacrificial system is what the author is saying. Look at verse 10. By this will. By what will? Well, by the will of God. By the will of God. That, that God wanted this. So by this will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, sanctification, hagiadzo is, is the Greek term, the verb here. Uh, sanctification in Hebrews is not the way we often talk about sanctification in Christian theology as I'm growing in holiness in my Christian life. That's not the meaning of this term here. Sanctification is being cleansed from sin. That's what sanctification is here. Uh, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In other words, we have been decisively cleansed from our sins, from the, from the consequences of our sins, by the sacrifice of Christ. It's, it's the word that, that is related to a whole group of words in the New Testament that have to do with holiness, being made holy, being a holy person. So he's saying here that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of, of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? It's not about ongoing growth in uh, maturity or something like that. Here in Hebrews, this terminology is used of, of your sins being dealt with so that you now are considered clean before God because of what Christ has done. You're getting benefit of what Christ has done. Alright. Um, we've already kind of worked through some of these just spontaneously, so let me, uh, let me move on there. Alright, when he turns to verses 11 and following, he now is coming to really the climactic moment. And this is what he says. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time which can never take away sins. And again, I think here he's, he's interfacing with the Old Testament text. He's saying when you look at the Old Covenant system, it is something where the priest, this is what the priest does. The priest stands day after day um, making these sacrifices but this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus made his sacrifice, was exalted to the right hand of the Father, and this is what we were talking about the other day, that the Psalm 110.1 here, this is an allusion, the fourth allusion in the book, or the fourth uh, quote of the book, uh, quote and allusion in the book, uh, to Psalm 110.1. And, and this, at this point, the author is using it as an image of finality. Uh, notice the contrast. The priests stand ministering. They stand doing their thing with their sacrifices and that thing. Day after day after day, they're standing and they're, they're doing this. Jesus, by contrast, did His sacrifice and now He is set down at the right hand of God. Right? Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus is inactive. <laughs> now, he, the author's already says that he is bearing all things by his powerful word in the world, that kind of thing. But, but he's capitalizing on the imagery 
of Psalm 121 to speak of the finality of what Christ has done. The decisiveness of what Christ has done. And let me tell you, if you ever get your mind and your heart around this idea that your sins have been decisively dealt with once and for all, every sin, you, no matter how bad that you've ever committed, every sin that you ever will commit has already been decisively dealt with by Christ. It will change your life. It's something that you can kind of get your heart and your mind around to understand that uh, it doesn't, and in my experience, it doesn't make you want to be more casual about sin. It makes you more serious about sin because you realize that uh, you're, you're sinning in the face of, of a gift here uh, when, you, when you kind of treat sin lightly. It never should be treated lightly. Think about the, 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 uh, the magnitude of what it took for God to, to deal with all the sins that would ever be committed, right? So you have this, this idea. So he says that he sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In other words, those who, who come to him and in Christ in the new covenant have their sins forgiven, he has perfected for all time. He has gotten them to where they need to be in their relationship with God from now on, for all time. And that's, that's straightforward in what he's talking about here. Okay, So it's something that is decisive. Now, he's going to bring it all the way back around. I keep, I keep doing my comments before I put this stuff on the, on the, uh, the board, so I'm just going to kind of, kind of work on through here. He comes, brings it back around to the quote that he started with. Remember back in chapter 8, we had that long quote of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And now he's going to bring it back around to the punchline of that quotation. And notice that here he puts the Scriptures on the lips of the Holy Spirit. So we've seen Scripture on the lips of God the Father, Scripture on the lips of the Son, Scripture on the lips of of the Holy Spirit. Again, I told you at the very beginning of the class that the author at times will quote a psalm that obviously is from a human perspective, like Psalm 8 in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. But when he does that, that's when he kind of backs off his introductory formula and says, well, someone somewhere says this. He's, he's in, intentionally giving an ambiguous introductory formula. He knows exactly where Psalm 8 is. <clears throat> but he's making it ambiguous because he wants to keep the focus on Scripture as falling from the lips of God. So he has that with God the Father, he has it with God the Son, he has it with the Spirit as well. So notice here, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, so, so the Holy Spirit is testifying along with the Son. He's just quoted Psalm 40. He's now saying, let me, let me add a quote from the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit testifies about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer an offering for sin. In other words, when you, when you understand what Christ has done, where there is forgiveness of these things that He's talking, this kind of forgiveness He's talking about, there's no longer an offering for sins. 
There's no longer an offering for sins. This is why when the author, if he is dealing, if we read this correctly and the author is actually dealing with people who are going back to what we might call mainline forms of, of Judaism. Let's just say kind of official, you know, some of the main synagogues in uh, Rome at this time, if that's what's going on. Uh, when you, if, that's, if that is the case and you have people in effect in the church, pressure is rising, things are getting tough, and there are some people who are in essence saying... Well, you know, this, this has been okay, this, this following Jesus stuff, but I'm just going to go back to the synagogue. I'm just going to go back to, you know, the Judaism that I have known, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of do that. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. And the author is saying, no, it's really not. It's really not. Because in Christ, the sacrificial system has been made obsolete. He's dealt with sins in such a way that, that the sacrificial system is no longer in, in effect. It's no longer in, in power. And so the author is saying that you, uh, when, you go, when you come to Christ, you're coming to something that has been decisively done and dealt with, and he is actually the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father at this point. So that's what he means when he says here, when you have forgiveness of these things, you no long, there's, there's no longer sacrifice that is effective because Christ has done away with that in the sacrifice of Himself. Okay? Alright, let me give you a, a couple of things to think about in terms of just kind of implications of this um, as we think about what the author has brought us to at this point. Um, I mentioned the idea of of God's forgiveness and the decisiveness of God's forgiveness so that we are, um, are, are living out of the graciousness of God where God has brought us to a place where we are living in response to God's graciousness, that we are no longer living under guilt. I think one of the, one of the most beautiful pictures of that is with Peter. Uh, you think about Peter, uh, last week of Jesus' life, Peter ends up denying the Lord. Uh, I think it's one of the, one of the beautiful indications that what we are dealing with here is not, these are not made up stories when we're talking about the gospel and the death of Christ and all these things. You don't make up stories about the colossal failure of your main leaders. Right? So, uh, so what happens is you have this magnificent failure on the part of Peter where Peter, uh, find, he, he actually is the only disciple that, that tracks, keeps following Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. The high priest was wealthy. Uh, probably the way the courtyard was set up is in kind of a, uh, a rectangle of houses and um, you have both Annas and Caiaphas mentioned uh, in the gospel stories, and that's because you know you have a, a family there. I think they're even in the, living in the same complex. But Peter follows um, Jesus' captors into this courtyard, and is kind of hanging out incognito around the fire. And as he gets revealed, he kind of goes into accelerating levels of, of even profanity and kind of you know cursing and saying, you know, I, I don't know him. Luke's gospel is especially graphic. It's as if he's out here by the bonfire 
The, the doors are open into the big gathering space inside. Jesus is in the middle being tried by the Sanhedrin. And when Peter comes to the, to the climactic moment and says, I don't know Him! I don't know Him! You know, just this denial of Jesus. Luke says, at that moment, Jesus turns and looks at Him. And from out there in the courtyard, Jesus, Peter you know, looks toward Jesus and Jesus just turns and looks at Him. <laughs> and He just crumbles into uh, devastating weeping at that point and runs off into the night. And there's a, a lovely um, poem from Elizabeth Barrett Browning and she writes about this um, this way. When, when Peter and, and Jesus meet again, the Savior looked on Peter, I, no word, no gesture of reproach, the heavens serene, though heavy with armed justice, did not lean their thunders that way. The forsaken Lord looked only on the traitor. None record what that look was, none guess. For those who have seen wronged lovers loving through a death pain king, or pale-cheeked martyrs smiling to a sword have missed Jehovah at the judgment call. And Peter, from the height of blasphemy, I never knew the man, did quail and fall, as knowing straight that God and turned free and went out speechless from the face of all and filled the silence weeping bitterly. I think that look on Christ might seem to say, Thou art thou, Peter, art thou then a common stone which I at last must break my heart upon? For all God's charge to His high angels may guard my foot better. Did I yesterday wash thy feet, my beloved, that they should run quick to deny me neath the morning sun? And do thy kisses like the rest betray? The cock crows coldly. Go and manifest a late contrition but no bootless fear. For when thy final need is dreariest, thou shalt not be denied as I am here. My voice to God and angels shall attest because I know this man. Let him be clear. Very, very powerful. Very, very powerful. And, and you have that embodied when Jesus does meet Peter. And I think the beautiful thing about it is Jesus, you know, they don't go into kind of this deep dialogue about, you know, Peter's failure and all this kind of stuff. Jesus, in essence, just kind of turns to Peter and says, okay, time to get busy now. You know, there's, there's just immediate forgiveness and reconciliation. He even anticipates that and says to, to Peter, you know, when all this gets sorted out, you know, uh, we're going to get on with the, with the mission. And it's just kind of a getting down to business kind of beauty there to what Jesus does. So, you know, our assurance uh, is, is grounded in the magnificence of the sacrifice and the forgiveness of Christ. Um, and, and that is something that is, Hebrews is really trying to drive home for us here. And as we get ready in a bit to move into uh, this last uh, section, which we're going to, I think, be able to look at that and then even the climactic uh, movement in the book a little bit later in chapter 12. We're going to see if we can get there. 
But but what we see is that this this is the the kind of the, the ringing of the bell here at the end of the Christology of the book that the uh, the point the point is that we are so decisively forgiven in the new covenant that we can live freely as as God's people in the world and, and be on mission with Him even in the face of difficulty and persecution and how hard the world really is. Okay, because we live uh, not under a, a weight of guilt, we live with a sense of, of freedom of what Christ has brought to us uh, by the Spirit. Okay, let me see if you have questions. We'll, we'll kind of talk through this a little bit for a minute, and then we'll uh, take a break. But do you, uh, do you have some thoughts you want to probe or questions you want to raise at this point? Yes. Yes. Uh, Antonius. <laughs> uh, so I'm stuck on verse 14 where it says being sanctified. Yes. Uh, because in verse 10, uh, the author talks about how we, his people, have been sanctified. Yes. So sanctification is this, in a sense, one-time act, which is what the author is getting at. Well, what do you think he means by the use of being? No, that's a, that's a wonderful question. And let me, uh, let me see if I can answer it in a way that is clear here. So in verse 14, um, by one sacrifice, he has perfected for all times the ones being sanctified. It's a present passive participle. Okay, so um, what he's what he's talking about there, I think, is the if you think about church all of church history since the time of Christ, um, and throughout that era, you have people coming to Christ. All right, so prior to the author of Hebrews writing, there were people who were being sanctified. During his time, people are being sanctified in the sense of coming to Christ, being cleansed. And in the future, as we move into the future, there are those who are being sanctified. So I think what he's doing is, uh, he says, he has perfected for all time. That's, that's a decisive statement of fact. Those who are being sanctified. In other words, all of those who, through the ages, come to Christ in the New Covenant... Um, so one after another. The one after another. <coughs> it's an ongoing present, present tense um, in in Greek is something that just means this is still open ended. This is ongoing. It's it's like uh, being right up next to a parade and the parade's pa- you know going past you. That's present <coughs> tense. You're seeing an ongoing open ended kind of thing going on there. So I think that's what he's talking about. He's not saying. He has perfected those who are in an ongoing way being sanctified. He's saying he has perfected all t- for all times those who throughout the ages come to Christ in the new covenant and are sanctified. Does that make does that make yeah, a little bit of sense of it? Yeah, yeah. But I think this idea of he has perfected for all time is just well, that's an amazing statement. He's gotten them to where they need to be in their relationship with God. Okay. Yes. Verses 5 through 7, it says Christ said it. Mine aren't written in red. Um, and so I was kind of wondering why. And then mm-hmm. also, like. You know, if, we, Paul, if, if Paul used red ink and. <laughs> right, stuff. but like, I don't know. The rest is like an act and stuff, but it's not Jesus. No, I understand. Just quoting his David in red. But also, like, do we have. Where did he say this? Like, you know when he said No, no, that's, I don't know. I'm so no, that's a great, that's a great question. I'm just, I was playing with you there. Uh, you know, we do have red letter editions of the Bible, which kind of are, are trying to just highlight when Jesus is speaking. Um, 
again, going back to something I said earlier, the, the first manuscripts, when these were written, you had no headings, you had no bold, you had no spaces between the words, you just had letters do like this all across you know, the page. And, um, and therefore, some of these matters turn out to be interpretive. You know, they're interpretive issues. What the author of Hebrews is doing is reading the <coughs> psalm messianically. So the author of Hebrews is, is indicating here that he is reading this as on the lips of Jesus himself because he sees aspects of the psalm corresponding with the life and the work of Jesus. The, imbi- the incarnation and then the, the sacrifice for sins and that kind of thing. One of the, one of the questions that's an interesting question that I, I, and I am very interested in this area and, and really would like to follow up on it some, um, but there is evidence and indication that when we read the New Testament, what we, what we have behind the scenes going on in the early church, um, some scholars believe, is a gathering together of what are called testimonia. And so what this would be would be scholars in the, in the early church who are reading the Old Testament scriptures and actually pulling out uh, these scriptures into a, a group. Just like you would do a Bible study and you would say, I'm doing a Bible study on righteousness. And so you kind of bring out all of your quotes of your different passages in righteousness and have them in, in one place. And there's an indication that in the early church there were these collections where probably they were having dialogues behind the scenes. I think, as I said earlier, they were ini- that was initiated by Jesus himself. I think after Jesus was raised from the dead, one of the things he was doing prior to his ascension was teaching his disciples, okay, let me walk you through some of this in terms of how the scriptures speak about me. And so I think Jesus is pointing them to particular passages. It, it could be that this is one of the passages that he pointed to and says, I actually am, you know, what you've seen here in recent days is actually a fulfillment of this. So, um, it is an interpretive move that the author is making, but what he's doing is he's reading this psalm messianically. He's reading it as fulfilled in Jesus, and that's why he puts it on the lips of the Son, because he's reading the Son's submission to the will of God in that sense as, um, you know, as embodied in, in Jesus. Uh, yes, I think you had a question. And then well, and then just for clarification, um, I know in chapter on verse fourteen you talked about it, that the words, the, the verbiage there, meaning those were being saved, but I'm basically right. But why is why can it not be an interpretation of justification and sanctification? Because that's not the way the author uses this verb. Just the verb. Just the, the word. verb itself. Yeah, in Greek, hagiazo <laughs> is, is used. Um, it's just used differently okay. than uh, we, we talked about sanctification. Your, your tr- English translation will read it as sanctification a lot, a lot of times. But sanctification can have a couple of different theological meanings, and one is just being cleansed from sin, mm-hmm. that kind of idea. Yes, uh, George. George, help me to reconcile uh, this. I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Yes. With these earlier exhortations that we got, that if you turn away from this, there are dire and horrible consequences. Yes, yes, yes. I think I think that um, here's here's the way I would describe it. We have to read these passages. Not you know we we read them as kind of theological treatises, if you will. But remember, this is a pastoral document, right? <laughs> 
So it, it is theological, it is a wonderful treatise, but it is also pastoral. It is, uh, if you think about it, let's just imagine for a minute that we were a large house church in Rome in the first century. You know, just ima- you know, kind of go to your imagination and say we're in a large house church and we're all, all meeting here. The author is addressing a group of people who are coming from all different places spiritually. Uh, all the way from people who are deep, seem to be deeply committed Christians. They're, they're right there living for the Lord and that kind of thing. Two, people in the room right now who, as I said earlier, they have one foot out the door. And they're just saying, I'm not sure that I buy this Christianity stuff. I'm not sure that I buy this you know, following Jesus and all of this. So what he cannot do is give unqualified assurance to everybody in the room. In fact, he wants to give a, a very harsh warning at points to say, look, if you turn your back on Christ and walk away, it's saying something terrifying about you. And uh, I think that the reconciliation is to understand that it's kind of like the wheat and the tares in Jesus' um, ministry he talked about those who, who looked like they were the real followers of, of God and those who, who really were the real followers of God. The wheat and the tares look alike, but they'll be sorted out at the, at the end. And so I think what Hebrews is doing is he's giving both strong statements of assurance like this one he has perfected for all time, knowing that there are people in the, world, in, in the room who are New Covenant people. But he also gives the harsh warnings because... There may be those who are tempted to turn their back and walk away and would therefore manifest that they don't really know Christ. They're not really a part of the new covenant. Now that's read in different ways by people. Are they losing something that they really had or are they abandoning the faith because they never really had it? Well, practically speaking, that's you know you end up in the same place as being apart from God, turn your back on the gospel, saying Jesus is just a Jewish guy who died on the cross. So, um, so you have both and because the, the exhortations are there to help people endure in following Christ. You know, to, to kind of respond to the message in a way that they say, I will follow Jesus. I will keep on with this. So I think that that's why you have, you have both and here. I think what he's saying is if, you, if it turns out that you really are a part of the new covenant, you have been perfected for all time. Um, so that's, that's the way I would understand yeah. it. It's kind of a both and. It's not a clean, easy you know, thing. But I, I, think, I think understanding in the debates about Calvinism, Arminianism, and all that stuff with this passage, do people lose salvation or you know, whatever... I, I think that it miss, those conversations at times miss the kind of the pastoral context that he's trying to address a lot of different kinds of people in the room at the same time. And I think to remember also that, that God alone can read human hearts. That's it. Yeah, this, this writer cannot look into yeah. the hearts of people in the, in the room and know what's going on. And that's not our job. You know, we our, our part... Uh, the, the closest we can come is just see what is manifested in the in the fruit of a person's life, and and minister to them accordingly. So that if I am if I am uh, ministering to someone, I remember I had a student years ago, who um, this was back years ago at Union, and this student was living like the devil. He was actually going through one of our majors, but had kind of gotten away from the Lord in in college, and and was just just had a horrible attitude and. 
and uh, you know, really was not serious about the things of God at all. And uh, I sat down with him, and I, I lovingly said to him, you know, the, what may be going on here is that you do not know Christ at all, and you are on your way to hell. I said, that, that may be. I said, I can't look into your heart, I don't know, but it may be that what you're manifesting here is that. And I think what we cannot do is we should not ever give assurance to someone who, is, who has turned their back on Christ and has walked away and says, well, it's okay, you, you, you were baptized 15 years ago or you yeah. came into the church at whatever, you baptized as a child, you, you really are going to be okay. We should never give assurance to a person who has turned their back on Christ and walked away from the church. Never. In fact, what I think we should do is come to that kind of person. Our role then is to lovingly encourage and exhort and say, believe the Gospel. That's great. Turn to Christ. And, uh, and, and it's a, it becomes a pastoral kind of impulse that we need to give attention to. Alright, we're going to take a break. Let's take a 20 minute break and um, we're going to uh, have uh, a final session together after we come back and we're going to see this Beautiful passage in uh, ten times. One of the uh, one of the lovely things about uh, Regent, and I'll, I'll say this, and I'm going to ask uh, Madison to come and share a little bit about the State Center. But one of the things I love about Regent is the the uh, structure of our school em- embodies the ethos of the school. You come to Regent, and it's one big building, and, and an atrium runs down kind of the middle of the whole thing so that the whole building is pointed down into this public space. And we even have people kind of wander in from the UBC campus to have coffee and, and that kind of thing. But you'll, you'll often find many people down there uh, just having coffee and talking. So the buzz of everybody standing around and having coffee and talking and eating snacks, again, this is, uh, this is very much what we're trying to foster at Regent. Let me say one word about... The handout, um, ho- hopefully everybody got the handout of the preview of courses coming next summer at Regent. Those are just a beginning place. There will be a lot more courses than that. So you can go to the Regent website as time goes on. What, you, what would really be good is for you to get on Regent's mailing list and, um, and be able to get prompts. I would really ask you to do that. Go to Regent's website and sign up so you can get prompted about different events that are coming. And when next summer comes up, they'll send you emails that will tell you about the courses that are coming, but they, they will really be magnificent. So, Carl, did you want to just say a word about your experience? You if you would do that just real just quickly. Real quick, I had a great experience. I was there a week, I was there a week in May, June, and it was a wonderful experience, similar to this kind of climate, as Dr. Guthrie mentioned. And um, I had a great two, two great courses I was able to attend, one on... Ephesians and another one on Church Fathers. It was absolutely sort of mind-blowing, great stuff. And the staff and the faculty were incredibly hospitable, and the climate is a great place to be. The other thing I was just going to mention is that you can also get an email for Regent Audio. And yes. That is really useful. Like you can get half-price courses every every week or two. That an email comes out and says, "Here's our list of half prices for this month. We're, this month we're doing." And so they, you can get courses from over the last 30 or 40 years at Regent summer summer classes for half price uh, on audio for like 30 bucks and all the lectures of 
Dr. James John Stott on Ephesians or something like that. Yeah, I mean we have we have audio from F. F. Bruce. We have audio from uh, Eugene Peterson on the Christian life. Gor- the great Gordon Fee, who's one of my great heroes, who was wonderful New Testament scholar there at Regent for years. Bruce Walty on the Old Testament. I mean, you just just amazing uh, courses that you can get. So again, if you go and you sign up for uh, emails from Regent, Regent Audio. Uh, at least that will tell you how to pray for us, which would be, which would be great. So, um, so I, I want to say on behalf of Regent, thank you to the Study Center for having me this week and, and responding. I think uh, I can't remember if Jeff Greenman, our president, initiated with you or you initiated with him, or how, however you guys got talking about it. But thank you for hosting this this week, and uh, we appreciate it. So Madison's going to come say a word about the Study Center itself before we kind of wrap up in our last session. Right. I know we're going to give George a round of applause. <laughs> it was so fun. One of my favorite things to do in my job is to uh, be able to give people great material, new friends, and great gifts like George, and to see y'all respond to his teaching and presence and pastoral presence and scholarship. And it's just an amazing combination of traits to bring. So um, we're so, so grateful. And I will have lots of opportunities to express that, hopefully. Um, this idea initially actually came, we had several board members who were interested in taking cl- summer classes at Regent, and it's all the way out in Vancouver. And I've always wanted to go take a class in Regent, and it was just too hard for me to get out there, and sort of like, well, what if we can bring a taste of that in Chapel Hill? Maybe then people can prioritize going there in the future, or at least we can have a way to do that accessibly over here. And so um, we had several donors who helped put together an honorarium, along with some church partners, um, which we're really thankful for. And um, so we get to present this amazing um, teacher <coughs> to people in Chapel Hill. And, um, it's one of kind of our mission with the study center is to be a center for Christian life and thought at UNC. So it's kind of like part um, hospitality and connecting point for lots of different ministries. So this year we're going to have in our offices InterVarsity Grad and Faculty, Young Life, Reform University Fellowship, Every Nation and FCA slash Athletes in Action. And um, so we're kind of like a hub for lots and lots of groups that are coming and going. And then from that vantage point, we get to exercise, um, we get to train students in leadership and education. And so we do a lot of one-on-one work with students. But our real educational vision for this is for Carolina to be a great place to get a Christian education. Amen. For when, when my daughter goes... The college. I'm like, you know, I've got a list of colleges, but the one that offers the best Christian education that I know of is in Carolina. Um, where we have guys like Matt Hain teaching um, bi-weekly for three years straight to a single cohort of students. Um, we're offering seminars on the life of, on the life and mind of C.S. Lewis. Um, where we're bringing great speakers from the outside in. Um, but to be able to take three hours a day for five days straight and just do a deep dive in the scripture, there's nothing like it. And I remember being in college, and that was what helped me to stay Christian. Was um, and I was probably my, my my fate was already sealed. But um, but to see the beauty of the Book of Genesis um, for one summer, when we just read it for hours a day, and on all even all through Scripture, just flipping the pages back and forth, it does something to your heart and to your soul to um, be fully embedded in the Word. So that's what we're doing on a regular basis. Um, we have to keep doing this in the summers too. So we're already talking to George about next summer who we bring. Um, anyone back? Who knows? Um, have, and, and we can have more um, next year too. We can maybe have two teachers. So we'll, we'll, you'll be getting a survey from us um, afterwards, and we'll be able to think more about what we want to do next summer. 
Um, some of y'all have pointed out that we could try to go for a bigger room too, or with better, better air conditioning. Um, <laughs> so there's all kinds of things in the air around here, including the potential to renovate this very room. This or if you want to just give money to renovate. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're hoping, you know, we're prayerfully hoping to boost the ceiling and build an outdoor patio right outside to widen this doorway to the next room right over. Um, every room will be touched. <laughs> Actually demolished and then rebuilt. <laughs> um, so we're really excited about, and, and you can see what's happening right here happens a lot with students. Um, we'll have like every desk occupied and and just not enough bathrooms and desks no. and seats. And, um, so we're excited about our future here. And, and also y'all's membership in our community. We're going to have more events, exciting events coming up this year. So y'all will all now be on our mailing list because we have your email addresses. Um, and we have an organizational trifold too that I'll just, um, we'll just pass out in a second so you can take that with you. Um, but again, our organization name is hard to remember. It's the North Carolina Study Center. And uh, we're happy to be able to be kind of like a launching point into, into UNC um, where some of the best of Christian life and thought comes together. And what we do is not possible without surrounding churches, without amazing campus ministries, without student leaders and Christian faculty. And, um, but it's an awesome place to be able to sit and see everything that God's doing in Chapel Hill. So. All right, let's turn to uh, our final um, movement here in the Christology of the book, and we're going to uh, look at 10, 19 through 25, 10, 19 through 25. We saw earlier that in 4, 14 through 16, the author launches this great center section of Christology, 4, 14 through 16. You remember the the three main uh, kind of uh, key ideas there were, since we have a great high priest, that's the foundational statement, let us hold fast, let us draw near. Now, in 10, 19-25, he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy place ourselves, and since we have a great priest, let us draw near, let us hold fast. So he kind of inverts the uh, exhortations, and then he's going to even culminate with let us encourage one another. Let us not forsake the, our own assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but let's, let's hang in there um, in the faith together. So the author is, uh, is bringing this great center section of the book all the way around to where he started in 4.14 uh, and following. So we want to we unpack what the author does in, um, in this part of uh, Hebrews, which is such an important crossroads between the great center section of Christology and then this rolling exhortation that takes us all the way to the end of the book. From this point on in Hebrews, everything is exhortation. Even the uh, great hall of faith that you have in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, is not expositional. It, it sounds expositional by faith, so-and-so did this, by faith, so-and-so did this. But that's actually what um, in the ancient world was called an example list. Where the point is you give example after example after example after example after example so that you get to the end of that example list and, and again, everybody in the room is shaking their head and say, okay, this is the right way to live. So I'm going to live that way. That was the point of the example list was to, was to encourage people to do what these examples were doing. So with this uh, passage here in 10, 19 through 25, uh, what the author is doing is he's culminating 
the great center section on priesthood with us, the implications for us. Remember I said in 4.14 we have Jesus passing through the heavens. 6, 19, and 20, Jesus has gone behind the curtain as a forerunner for us. It's like we're right outside the curtain in the tabernacle and Jesus is the one who has gone in behind the curtain on our behalf. That's right before he goes into the, the material of Melchizedek in chapter 7 and the New Covenant in chapters 8, 9, and 10. So we look at where we come to in 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. Now coming to the end of this high priestly material, it's we have the ability to actually go into the very presence of God Himself. Now, as we said earlier, it's a now and not yet. Uh, I am not in the presence of God like I will be at the end of the age. Um, we will see Him face to face at that point um, in our resurrection bodies. But I do now have the ability to draw near to God in prayer, to, to step right into His presence uh, on, because of what Christ has done on my behalf. Okay, So we're going to take a look at this passage. One thing that I want to remember to deal with as we come around to the application and the implications of this section is a question someone was asking. I think it might have been you, Diane, right before the end. Uh, remind me of that question when we come around to the application because I, I want to be sure to be sure to deal with that. Okay, All right, so let's take a look at this passage and read it uh, out loud together. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the fresh and living way that he inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in the assurance that faith brings because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. And let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess, for the one who made the promise is trustworthy. And let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works, not abandoning our own meetings, as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging each other, and even more so because you see the day drawing near. Okay, uh, notice that you have a double use of this idea of since we have something. Since we have confidence, and since we have a great high priest, or a great priest in this case. Uh, the two are associated. We have confidence because of Jesus as our priest. So I want to talk through some things uh, with this passage uh, just for a moment. All right, so verses 19 and 20 are uh, the basis for the exhortations that follow. And we're going to kind of talk our way through the passage here in just a minute. So this foundational uh, statement of fact about the high priesthood of Christ and its basis of our being able to enter into the presence of God this is, this is all the foundation for the exhortations that follow. You have three of those exhortations that follow. Let us draw near. And we're going to do that with a sincere heart, having hearts that are sprinkled clean. 
Again, he's using Old Testament imagery here as he's talking about this. Let us hold on to the hope that we confess. And then finally, let us stir up one another to love and good deeds. So this idea that we are kind of uh, working from the standpoint of um, drawing near to God in our relationship with God, holding on to the hope we confess, if you will, in relation to the world, you know, as we interface with, with the world in general, and then stirring up one another in relation with the body of Christ. See, how that, isn't that beautiful? Now you have a very balanced approach there. So let me put the, uh, let me put the text uh, back up here, and let's kind of talk our way through some of the dynamics that we see here um, in the text. All right? So, uh, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. Again, I've, I've talked about this word already a little bit. Uh, what he means by this, there's, um, the, the, the Greek term has to do with boldness. Uh, it could be used of frankness uh, in the ancient world where you are just stating something frankly that needs to be said. Uh, what he means uh, in this context is that you and I are, in, in some ways, what would seem an audacious, uh, an audacious kind of move, we are able to, with confidence, step right into the Holy of Holies ourselves. Uh, you remember the uh, image that I used yesterday or the day before where I was talking about the President's office and that I don't, I don't ever just kind of barge into... Jeff Greenman's office as the president, uh, I go in and I, with deference, I go into his uh, administrative assistant, Maria, who's a lovely, lovely person, and I say, uh, Maria, I, <clears throat> I would like to have a time to meet with Jeff, if that would be okay. If you could fit me in in the next month, that would be great, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So I go in, uh, as close as Jeff and I are, you know, we're friends, we're, we're not close, close friendship, but we're, we're really getting to know each other. He's a wonderful guy, and I, I value his friendship. As close as we are, I still, there's something about the position that I have respect for, and I'm not just going to go barging in. It, isn't it astounding that I have more of a basis for stepping right into the presence of the God of the universe mm-hmm. than I do for go barging into the That's president's good. office at Regent, University, or Regent College? have more of a basis. Again, it's not a presumptuous, but this is, this is kind of an audacious claim that the author is making. But the reason is because it's not based on our person, our status, or our work. I only have this right, if you will, to step into the presence of God because of my relationship with Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. I only have that ability to do that because of my relationship with Him. So I have confidence. Notice the, the descriptive language here. I enter in by the blood of Jesus. By a, this translation says, a fresh and living way. Uh, some of your translations will read, a new and living way. It's a way that has not been uh, worked out before. It's, it's a way that is something that is different from the old covenant way of moving into the presence of God. This is a new, a new thing that God has done in the world, in other words, in the new covenant. It's a new way of moving into the Holy of Holies that Christ has uh, worked out. 
and it is a living way. Some of the language that is used here was also used in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And we're, we, just for the sake of time, we won't go into that um, at this point. But the idea that it is a living way, at least one thing that we can say about that, is that I go in not just on the basis of a dead sacrifice. I go in on the basis of one who was sacrificed who is now alive. It's, on the, it's a living relationship that Jesus has... has uh, worked out because he is the living, risen Lord who escorts me, if you will, in, in his high priesthood into the very presence of God. It's a new way that hasn't been done before. It is a living way in that it has to do with life and not, and not just death uh, because of his resurrection. But it was inaugurated for us through the curtain which the author says here is analogous to the flesh of Christ. You think about it, the death of Jesus, the breaking of Jesus' body was the necessary sacrifice that then opened the way for us into the presence of God. Think about that when Jesus was on the cross, you have the tearing of the veil of the temple. And uh, there are different ways that scholars have read that. Is that about the fact that, uh, that God was showing judgment on the temple and that he was leaving that form of the temple to take up residence elsewhere, you know, for instance, in the in the new temple, the people of God, or is is it symbolic of the tearing of the veil of the temple, symbolic of uh, our ability to now enter into the very presence of God in Christ? Okay, you can kind of study that and probe that a little bit. Um, I think that the, the dynamics there, though, it's a it's a graphic image. Uh, that you have with the tearing of the veil. So you have Christ's body itself that has been torn as the way for us to enter into the presence of God. And so he goes on, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. Again, the language of drawing near is language that... um, was used of the priests who were being appointed uh, by God as priests. If you go back and look at Leviticus 9, for instance, this language of drawing near. The priests were to draw near to the entrance of the, of the tabernacle, uh, draw near to the entrance of the tent in order to be appointed as priests by God. But in the broader Jewish world of the time, it also this language was used of prayer. Let us draw near to God in prayer. So practically speaking... What I would say the beginning place for us uh, would be on the basis of what Hebrews has been teaching us about the high priesthood of Jesus, you and I have the ability to come near to God, go right into God's presence just as a priest would in the Old old Covenant system, and even more so as the high priest would going in behind the curtain into the the very presence of God uh, itself. Okay, so... Let us draw near. And how do we draw near? A couple of things. We draw near with a sincere heart. We draw near with, um, with Jesus kind of leading the way for us. Um, and we draw near with a heart that is, is pure, this word could be translated. One that is right. Our hearts have been put in the right place as they have yielded to God and God has shaped our hearts 
according to the new covenant. Remember again, the law is written on the hearts and the minds of those who are part of the new covenant. When our daughter Anna was uh, small, and I'm sure that we did this with Joshua as well, but I remember uh, moments, especially uh, with Anna, where you know when she was little bitty, and she kind of got an attitude going, and uh, and she would be she would be like this, and she would not be wanting to to listen, you know, to what to what Pat was saying to her, and um, and and Pat would say. Uh, now, now, Anna, and she would take a little bit of Play-Doh and she would take a rock and she would say, now, now, just think with Mommy for a minute. Is your heart kind of like this Play-Doh where it's soft toward me or is it hard like this rock right now? Is it moldable? Is it a heart that is, is in the right place, in other words, in the relationship? When I, was, when I was talking to her a lot of times and she was in that position, if I took her chin and I just gently raised it up where she would look me in the eyes, all of a sudden those eyes would kind of puddle. And it's like, like her heart would melt just, just through eye contact you know, with me and she would kind of open up and soften her heart and we would be able to move toward reconciliation or whatever needed to take place there. What, what this passage is saying is that our hearts have been put in the right place in our relationship with God. We have sincere hearts in the sense that, not that we're perfect, not that we're, you know, we don't struggle with you know, whatever, uh, even as believers of the New Covenant, but our hearts have been gotten to the place where they are open to God and, they, and we have this relationship with God which is defined by, by hearts that are yielded to Him and wanting to do the things that He wants us to do. So uh, we have sincere hearts as we draw near because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I don't think this is an allusion to baptism in this last statement. Um, Certainly believers would have drawn that association. But what the author is doing here is he is using the language of the Old Covenant. The sprinkling... You know, remember those sacrifices we've already seen with the sprinkling and the priests would have their bodies washed in the process, even like on the Day of Atonement. You had the washing of the body of, of the high priest. And so he's using this Old Testament imagery to say um, that we have been cleansed. It's another way of just saying that we've been decisively cleansed from sin and that, is, that gives us the ability to draw near to God in our relationship with Him. So the first thing is, he says, since we have this high priest, since we have this great priest and we have confidence in him, first of all, let us, in our relationship with God, how do you persevere? How do you hang in there in the Christian life? Well, you live a life that has the rhythm of drawing near to God. Okay, So you draw near to Him. Secondly, he says, let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess. For the one who made the promise is trustworthy. Um, one of the great promises or one of the great images that is used over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament has to do with God's chesed. chesed. That, that word is actually translated about 14 different ways in the King James Version because it's hard to just uh, translate this idea of God's faithfulness, His loving kindness but it has to do with the covenant love of God, the covenant love of God, covenant faithfulness of God, God's chesed. 
Um, I have a friend who's about my age, and you would, you would know his name if I dropped it. I'm not, I'm not going to drop it. But uh, he doesn't have any tattoos except he did get Hesit tattooed on a little place on his body. And uh, because he, he, did love, he loves that word. Um, and so you have this idea of, uh, of Hesit, and it's, um, it's, it's something that would, uh, would be really great. In fact, Madison, remind me afterwards. I want to. That's somebody you ought to have come here. So, and everybody's wondering now who is. <laughs> I'll go. I'll go ahead and tell you. Uh, it's, my, it's Michael Card. I don't know if you know Michael Card's music, a musician, but Mike now does a lot of stuff with Christ in the creative process. He'd be a great guy to come to sing and maybe do a day of teaching. He's doing a lot of Bible studies and things like that. But Mike has a recent book on Hesed. So I didn't, yeah, I didn't want to drop the name, but I, I think he's awesome. He's he's a dear dear friend of mine. We got we actually got to know each other through um, William Lane. Bill Lane was my mentor for the last ten years of his life on Hebrews. He wrote the big two volume commentary on Hebrews in the Word Biblical Commentary series, and he had been mentoring Mike already for about fifteen years at that point. And uh, and so Mike and I got to know each other through Bill. So I didn't only drop the name; I gave you the whole history and everything. So, <laughs> where, is, where is he now? Mike? Mike Mike still lives in Franklin, Tennessee, okay. south of Nashville. But you guys ought to—it'd be easy to get him to come over, and you really ought to reach out to him, tell him I sent sent you. Okay. So he would be great to have have come. So what the author is saying here is that uh, we hold on to our, the hope we confess because God Himself is trustworthy. You can trust Him. Now, now let me just say, uh, going back to Hebrews 11 kind of idea, uh, and I've, I've alluded to this earlier, but faith in the New Testament has nothing to do with a leap into the dark. That's a modern existentialist idea. Um, this, this idea of the leap that, that you know, uh, in the Enlightenment... Um, kind of the, the reaction against the dogma of the church and the Enlightenment said that history and faith, dogma, are two different things. And you've got to keep those really separate if you're going to be free to do real science in the modern world. Um, you know, Spinoza and others were kind of foundational in this, this kind of reaction against the dogma of the church. And in some ways, they had reason in their day for reacting against some of the political things that were going on in Europe at that time, it's understandable, but it was a it was a disastrous move in the long term, I think, in terms of biblical studies, because it's the idea that faith and history can have nothing to do with each other. When the whole idea in Christianity is that God has invaded human history, which He created Himself, and uh, and it's and the whole foundation that is historical is is really really important. So you've got this idea of faith in the New Testament that's not a leap into the dark, it's actually a step out on what God has revealed is true about Himself in history, in the world. And you're, you're stepping out in trust like you are trusting someone else in a relationship, an eyewitness testimony for instance, or, or, or just relationally growing in your trust of someone. I, I'm, I'm so excited I get to go home to my wife today. I, I, Pat and I just have such a great time together. And uh, I'm not going to get home until late tonight. But imagine that I was going to get home by supper time. And, um, and I, I phoned her and I said, Honey, what are we having for supper tonight? 
And she just, uh, she, she said, well, actually, since you're coming home, it's a special time. You know, so I have, I have made Cajun beans and rice because she knows I love Cajun beans and rice. You know? <laughs> and uh, at that point, um, I don't kind of spend the rest of the day going, I wonder if she's really going to do that. You know, I, I wonder, I kind of doubt, you know, I'm just not sure about this woman. <clears throat> you know, I, I, don't, I don't respond that way at all. In fact, when she tells me we're having Cajun beans and rice tonight, you know what, I, what happens? I start salivating <laughs> because I'm, an, I'm anticipating. I know her so well. I know that she wouldn't mess with me when it comes to food. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's the kind of relational trust that I'm talking about. Now, it is different with God. You know, we don't, we don't see God, but, but we do see the manifestations of what God has done in the world. And, and the trust is, is based on uh, responding to the testimony of what God has done in the world, right? Um, so this idea that he is trustworthy and therefore we should hold unwaveringly. This is a word that uh, in the ancient world could, could speak of the, like if you think about a reed blowing in the wind and it, it, kind of, it kind of bends with the wind that is blowing, this would be the opposite of that. This is something that doesn't bend. It's something that is firm. It's, it's solid. It's resolute. Um, where we lived in Tennessee, we had, we had bought an old home place about 20 years ago and um, built a house on that, on that home place and lived there for, for a couple of decades. And it was a beautiful, wonderful place. It was five and a half acres, had uh, 21 acres of wood surrounding us. And, and it was just a great great place to raise our kids. When I was putting in, I did. I was the contractor on the house. Pat and I designed the house. I was the contractor on the house. And, um, and Barry can stay in for my part. It's, uh, it's okay. But I was the contractor on the house and, um, and I did some of the work. But at that stage, I didn't, I didn't do a lot of the work on the house. But one thing I did do is I put in the mailbox and uh, went out to the side of the road and, and it was a, a, a post about this big that I sunk three feet in the ground. It was actually, I had to dig through gravel because it was right next to the road. And, but I got it down in there and I got that thing in concrete. And then I, I got a Rubbermaid, one of those hard, uh, you know, very, very well-made mailboxes that kind of fit down over that post and then latched into the post. This, so this is a solid structure. <laughs> and, uh, and a number of years later, we had some kids who were getting their jollies by driving through our rural area and busting mailboxes. So I, I mean, literally, I was going to work one day, and you would see neighbors' mailboxes just laying out there in the yard. And I asked them, the postman about it. He said, yeah, there have been about 60 mailboxes that have been, been busted. And I, and I then saw that they had tried to hit our mailbox. <laughs> and I could tell that because the top part of the mailbox had been moved about an eighth of an inch. <laughs> and I wish I could have seen that because, you know, what they do is they have baseball bats or whatever and they're riding and, and lean out the, out the side of the car and smash the, the mailbox as they, go, as, as they go by. It would have been like, remember those old uh, Roadrunner cartoons? Yeah. Wiley Coyote goes... <laughs> it would have been just like that. And, and I could tell they tried that uh, once or twice and then came back and they were frustrated and they took a Coke and just poured the Coke on top of the mailbox to, you know, 
accomplish something, I guess. <laughs> but but this, is the, this is the image of unwavering. The image of unwavering. Mm-hmm. That something is firm, it's steady, it's solid, so that in the, in the, the difficulties of life, there is a firmness, a solidity to what is going on. Now, now listen, folks, hear me on this. this. This is not something to be said lightly. Life is hard. I mean, really hard. Uh, and the Bible is very honest about that. It's hard for those who are going through just normal aspects of life that people face, like illness. Some of you have had devastating illness in this room. We have... Uh, friends right now who have cancer. Very, very difficult, difficult, hard, dark experiences in life. Uh, divorce. Uh, some people have are victims of divorce and it's, it's a tragic, very, very hard, difficult path to walk. Persecution. We have uh, friends around the world. I think I mentioned to you earlier that Pat and I have had two friends who have died as martyrs. And the church that we interact with in China and other places, some of them are facing harsh, harsh persecution. Uh, there's a couple, I think I was mentioning to Bob, that there's a couple in Beijing um, who they were leaders of a church in their network of churches. I think there were about 40,000 people. And one night in the middle of the night, the Chinese government came in and just bulldozed down the six, I think there were six buildings of this large church in Beijing, just came in and just bulldozed it down. The uh, staff was actually put on trial. The wife, who was kind of co-pastor with her husband, stood up in the court and just proclaimed. She said, you know, our, we are doing this because of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. She was completely unrepentant. And she and her husband and some of the staff were put into hard labor for, for I think, a couple of years. Uh, so you have people who are, who are facing... Really hard, hard difficulties, and all of us, all of us, are going to face challenges and difficulties of various kinds. So it's not a, a kind of a trite thing to say that we should hold unwaveringly. It's looking in the face of reality of how hard that is, and saying we have the ability to do that because we have a trustworthy God who walks with us even through the darkest kind of things that we can experience in this life. And so his, his exhortation is on the basis of who Christ is and who God is and what He's accomplished on our behalf. Hold on. Hold on. Hang on to your commitment to Christ and uh, do that unwaveringly. And the way that we do it is we do it in community. And that's the third point here. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together uh, let's take thought of how we can spur one another on to love and good works, not abandoning, the, abandoning our own meetings as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and even more so because you see the day drawing near. So we encourage each other, first of all, in Christian community. We spur one another on to love and good deeds. We, we live a pattern, a rhythm of life where we live in community in a way that we are, we are uh, prompting one another. This idea of spurring one another on, this term, uh, again, in the Greco-Roman world, could be used in a negative way of someone who's being prompted or, or spurred on through irritation. Um, 
you think about if, if you have a couple of kids who are in the back seat of the car and they're kind of picking at each other, the, the older brother's picking at the sister and she's getting mad and responding. The word could be used in that way, but it also could be used in a way where you are interfacing with someone else and, and just by being with them, you are prompted to good things. You are prompted to good things. Um, in our pond that was in our front yard there in Tennessee, for a while we had ducks for several years and then we had a fox move into the neighborhood and those ducks kind of one by one. Of course, the stupid ducks. Uh, I was the one protecting them and I would go out. They would run away from me down into the woods where, they, where the wild animals were. Um, but Mr. Fox kind of picked them off. But when the ducks were there in the pond, you could see where they had been feeding that day because you could see the... The, uh, the trail of mud, what ducks will do at times is they'll, you know, those tails will tip up and they'll feed off of the roots and weeds and things on the bottom of the edge of the pond. So they work their way around the edge of the pond and the ducks would be over on the far side of the pond, but you could see that they had started over here and gone all the way around because you could still see the water kind of stirred up, the mud that was stirred up there uh, in the water. And so what the author is saying here is you and I ought to relate to each other in such a way that good things are kind of being stirred up in us. Uh, I, I am not naturally a servant. Um, I, I'm not just—it's just not my natural wiring to kind of be self-giving and serve, you know, just find out what the need is and go serve people in practical ways. I've had to had to work on that. I tell my students, you know, I was in a church for years where we set up chairs every week, uh, you know, for the different events and things like that. I don't have the gift of chairs. <laughs> but you know what? For 20 years, I helped set up chairs, you know, in, in that church. Uh, because that, that is the right thing. That, that is the right thing. What did you say, Miles? Because charitable. I'm charitable. <laughs> that is terrible. Uh, but, but, but here's the thing. I, I grew as a person who did service by being around people like Larry Butler. Larry Butler was a businessman who lived uh, in our immediate area where Pat and I lived, and Larry was one of our elders for years, and he had a trust company where his company would build these these uh, trusses for roofs for commercial buildings and all these different kind of things. But Larry Butler was the kind of guy that if somebody had a need, I mean a tree had gone down in somebody's yard, you know, some kind of electrical thing was going on with their house. I mean, he would drop what he was doing and he was there. And he was serving. And he and, he and another guy uh, started a ministry where they would go down to South America and ride motorcycles through the jungles in South America out to these little villages. And they had learned how to fix the wells or put in wells for those villages. And, they, and that's what they did. They would take their vacation time to go down and do wells in South America for these people. Well, I needed to rub up against Larry Butler, you know, as a servant because it taught me, it challenged me to be more like that. So the author is saying, spur one another up to love and good deeds. You know, relate to each other in a way in community that you are living in this manifestation of the body of Christ as doing love and good works and not abandoning our own meetings together. You can't encourage to love and good deeds if you're not together. Not abandoning meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and even more so because you see the day, the day drawing near. 
The day that he's talking about here is an Old Testament concept uh, that the prophets talked about, the day of the Lord. It's going to be a day of judgment for those who don't know God. It's going to be a day of vindication for the people of God. This is an Old Testament concept that you see in places like Amos 8, uh, 9 through 11, Isaiah 2, 2 through 21, Joel chapters 1 through 3. So, for instance, the Israelites of Amos' day called for the day of the Lord because they were expecting it would mean deliverance for them. And Isaiah or Amos basically says, you say the day of the Lord, day of the Lord, but it's going to be a day of darkness for you and not light because they were not where they needed to be at all um, in, in their relationship with God. So this day of the Lord can be a day of, of judgment at the end of the age. The day for Hebrews and in the New Testament generally is the day of Christ's return. When Christ will come back, and he will judge uh, the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, 2 Peter 3.10, and other passages like that. Uh, Martin Luther said, I have two days on my calendar, today and that day. Mm. What he's saying is, I need to live every day, be fully present in what I'm doing today and living today, but I want to live every day in light of that day, the day of Christ's return as a reference point of, of how I uh, should and need to approach, um, approach life under Christ. So we have this idea of, um, of these wonderful exhortations that are given to us based on the rich Christology that we have seen in this book. So, so how would we kind of bring this together and sum it up um, I think what we would do is we would say that Christ's priesthood gives us a basis for living well in the world for Him, carrying out His mission, being His church in the world, uh, drawing near to God. We were given the basis for a walk with God, which is the whole story of Scripture. That's what it's about, is God working out relationship with His people and God wanting to walk among His people. We can draw near... To, to God because of what Christ has accomplished. We can hold on and persevere in this very difficult world uh, because of what Christ has done. And we do that in community. We do it in community. We live out this encouragement um, as we interface with one another and do exactly the kind of things that we're doing this week um, that you do in your churches week after week. Uh, you know, this, this interfacing with one another in a way that we are encouraging each other to grow deeper in the Scriptures, to understand how we are to live for the Lord, uh, but also just practically persevering in loving people, uh, persevering in doing good works, and allowing the Scripture to continue to shape us in our thinking so that we're, we're living that all of that out well. Um, let me address one question as just as a one point of, of application that someone, I think, Diane, it was you that asked about this, right? Uh, at the break that I wanted to be sure to address picking up on something I said earlier. And then I'll give you a chance to ask some questions about this uh, before we, we do uh, something together here in just a few minutes. Okay? Um, one of the things that, that Diane was asking um, was how do you minister to people? And help me with this if I'm not saying it exactly right, but how do you minister to people who, because of some of the harsh warnings that you have in the book, are really struggling with their own salvation. 
and, and whether or not they, they really are believers. And the thing that I said to her was, uh, I get more emails, I get basically two, two kinds of emails out of my ministry through uh, the commentary especially that you've read for this week. One is from pastors who say, you know, I've been preaching through Hebrews for the last six months and this really helped me. And thank you for helping me preach through the book, which was the reason I, I wanted to do this, this kind of commentary uh, in the beginning. But the other type of email that I get from people is they, they would say, I'm really struggling with whether I've committed the unpardonable sin. And can you tell me, am I who Hebrews 6 is talking about when it talks about those who have turned their back on Christ and there's, it's impossible to renew them to repentance? The language in our passage right after this passage in 1026 and following uh, is even harsher. It says that those people who turn their back on Christ have trampled underfoot the Son of God. There's no, no more offensive image in the Middle East even today than to, you know, throwing a shoe at somebody or putting somebody under your feet. Trampled underfoot the Son of God. They have treated the blood of the covenant as if it is koinon, it's, as if it's unclean not fit for sacrifice in the Jewish system. You didn't bring blemished animals because they were not fit for sacrifice. And the author is saying that these people have turned their back on Christ in a way and turned their back and said the gospel's not for me in a way that says your, your blood is just is not fit to, to have anything to do with my sins. And they've insulted the spirit of grace. So you have this really harsh language. Well, people at times read that and they think, uh, you know, they they may have committed this sin. I think Pat's grandfather, who was a dear, sweet Lutheran man, uh, German, uh, her ancestors had moved here about four generations before her to, to Texas, and they were part of this German uh, community, one of these German communities down in South Texas. And I think her father, her grandfather, really struggled with. Uh, thinking that he had, he had somehow committed the unpardonable sin, maybe you know, being disappointed with God and expressing that to God or whatever. So how do you deal with somebody? How do you minister to somebody who is uh, who is in this place? I've already talked about the fact that that with somebody who is presumptuous and arrogant and not not living out the gospel and not really caring about the things of God. And yet they're supposed to be a believer. I've already talked about how I think the right thing to do with that person is to confront and to say lovingly, uh, you know, you, you're in a dangerous place here spiritually. With those who come, I, I find most of these kind of folks who come uh, with this question of maybe I've committed the unpardoned sin, they are desperate for a relationship with God. Uh, they are. They want to know that they really do have a relationship with God, and and so what I the way I approach that kind of situation is I do not do what we were kind of taught to do when I was growing up and saying, uh, well, were you sincere back when you, you know, made a commitment to Christ? Were you sincere? Then you can trust that God will, you know, whatever. Because then you're appealing to a person's emotions in terms of kind of their experience from the past or, or whatever. So what, what I would do with a person like that is I would say, well, let me just ask you a few questions. Are, are you uh, in a place where you, you want to be a follower of Christ? You really want to be deeply committed to, to Jesus Christ? And normally the answer is, oh, yes, oh, yes, I really do want to be committed to him. And, and you're basing your relationship with him. You, you understand that the basis for that relationship is what? 
Well, only because Christ has died for me and you know God, He's worked out relationship. So you're trusting Him for the forgiveness of your sins and, and this kind of thing. And they'll say, yes, I, I'm, I'm, trusting, I'm, I'm trusting only Him. So what I do is I try to get the person to point them to the Gospel. And I, I, I say to them, you know, regardless of what has happened in the past, your posture of coming to God on the basis of what Christ has done, you're believing the Gospel, you're committing yourself to Jesus Christ, I want to just give you assurance that Hebrews is not talking about you. Hebrews is talking about people who have done the opposite. They've turned their back on Christ. They have walked away. I wish we had more time to look at some of the, um, some of the warnings of, of Hebrews because some of the language is, is telling there. But, but I think that even if a person has gone through a rough patch in life you know, and they, they've gotten away from the Lord, maybe gotten involved in, in various kinds of sins and stuff like that, I, I think that Christ can bring people back to Himself in the Gospel. We never can't look into a person's heart and know. But, but I think what we can do is, is tell a person uh, we can be assured and be confident, not because of anything that we've done uh, or haven't done, but we can be confident because of what Christ has done. And so I, I would say to that person, you are coming and bowing down before Christ. You are embracing the gospel in trust. You have reason for assurance of your salvation as you persevere in, in, in that faith and belief. The basis of assurance of salvation in the New Testament is perseverance. So that you hang in there in your faith. That's, that's what gives you assurance as you continue to trust and, and uh, believe in Him and follow Him. Okay? So, uh, anybody want to ask a question about that or anything else related to this kind of culminating passage that we have here. But does that help a little bit of, of how we try to try to help a person and give encouragement? And I would just say that, that believe the gospel. The good news is that it's not up to you, you know, that, that kind of thing. I think the blasphemy of the Spirit that is talked about in the Gospels is when um, the religious leaders were so messed up spiritually that they were call, calling the works of God the works of the devil. And they were, they were so messed up. But even... even Paul himself was a blasphemer and a murderer, really. And Paul says, and yet God in His grace, God in His grace reached, reached out to me and made His, made his Son known to me. You know, He says, I'm the, the greatest of all sinners. Okay. Uh, questions about that? Anything that I can kind of help clarify for you? Uh, that or some other question that you might have coming out of this passage before we take just a minute to, uh, to look at um, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 and following, just very briefly. Yes, David. Yeah, so in verse 22, and you may have mentioned this earlier, but verse 22 and it says, sprinkled clean from evil conscience, and he's talking about works. It seems to me like he's referencing back to chapter 9 with the specific sprinkling Absolutely of the, right, yeah. the temple and the holy places and the heavenly right. places. Yeah. So would you say that he's kind of making comment that now we are the, the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit, or we are the holy place? You know, that's a really, that's a really, really good question. Um, in those passages, a lot of times you, you do have a sprinkling of the, of the tabernacle and the people you know, in some of the foundations of the of the covenant. So I think that the probably the most immediate thing is that he's talking about, like in the the uh, red heifer ceremony, the person was sprinkled with water, that kind of thing. So probably most immediately that 
I have had students raise the question of that and the heavenly things being clean. Could that be the temple? Us as the new temple. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's possible. But, but Hebrews, again, is profoundly oriented to the tabernacle and the New Testament is normally playing off of temple imagery when it's talking about us as the new temple. Mm. So a little, a little bit different image there, I think. Um, but it's a great question. There certainly is a, is a connectedness um, but I think that he's he's most immediately talking about um, you know us being sprinkled clean as people, but but certainly a connectedness there because it's all tied into the tabernacle and the worship center. Great question. Right, somebody else. Yeah. Just a thought um, about I read this great article. I'm in the congregation here sitting at my church and read a great article about you're not meant to be alone. Right. But a lot of the society makes you alone. Right. Okay. Because of, and I'm not putting any social media down because I, I use it too, but often you can't communicate directly with somebody. Right. Like they don't want to take a call. Right. But they may Facebook you or whatever and talk to you a little bit. So it, it seems to be layers of communication for right. some people. And the second part with this article was actually about mentally handicapped people. And we have a great ministry in Durham called Reality, and it ministers to those people yeah. who have been alone. Sure. They've been on the short bus, so to speak. That's right. what the article said. My child was on the short bus with all the people that were on the short bus, right. never anyone else. Right. And they have often just had their families so now, the cool part is I'm involved in this uh, dinner that we do um, twice a month at church. It's called Pass the Peace, and it's just a dinner for them. And they yeah. have the best time right. of socializing. So I think people, what you said around the table is so good. Yeah. You know, that is yeah. how we communicate with a lot of people. Yeah. It's not through Facebook and it's not through other media, but right. often just saying, can, can you meet and have coffee or yeah. have lunch or something with us? Yeah. Um, we, had, um, we had Andy Crouch at, at uh, Regent the past few weeks, and he uh, has a book called The TechWise Family, where he's talking about the interface with technology and how we need to approach it appropriately. Uh, that kind of thing, but I think I think at, at the very least, what we as a church need to be doing is we need to be living counterculturally, so that we come we in a sense become the safest place in town for people who are normally marginalized mm-hmm. to come and be embraced in the context of the church. Mm-hmm. You can tell the health of your church by if whether or not you have people who are not like you, who are who are very welcome and feel safe, and they become integrated into uh, the church and, and you know. As a, as a normal part of what is happening with the church. Mm-hmm. And most of our churches, we need to grapple with that very deeply because we, we can, can grow to be insular if we're not careful. And uh, we need to be really open to this thing of, of having such a dynamic community people want to come and be involved in what we're doing. And just by having meals with them. Pat and I found that having meals with people just for the defenses just kind of drop. Uh, there's something about sitting around the table with somebody, and uh, and I think that that's a that's a large part of what we need to be doing here. Okay, uh, very briefly, um, I want to just say a word or two about this this beautiful passage. It's in this rolling exhortation that I mentioned at the end of the book, 
Um, but I want to just say a few words about this, and then we're going to sing a song together. Uh, did, did you miss it, Bill? Okay, there you go, Bill. Uh, the only one taking the There you go. Yeah, and, and what this is, it's a climactic moment where the author's talking about the blessings of the new covenant. We don't really have time to go into details uh, like we've done with the rest of the book, but it's built around a parallelism between the old covenant and the new covenant. Uh, and, and the author is using two mountains to kind of embody those two covenants. Uh, the first mountain that Sinai is not mentioned, but it's obvious he's talking about the about Mount Sinai and the establishment of the first covenant in Mount Sinai. And then he's talking about the, the new covenant in Mount Zion. And so I want to I want to conclude by just kind of looking at uh, these this, this beautiful kind of climactic note that the author gives here uh, at this um, point in the book, say a few words about it, and then we're going to sing and kind of close our time together. So let's read this together, uh, and I'll say a few words about this first part. We'll read the second part, and I'll say a few words about that. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to the darkness, moons, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet, the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they did not bear what was commanded. And if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. Alright, so what we have here with the Old Covenant mountain is... Um, there actually are some cool plays on words here when he's describing the imagery. But the thing I want you to notice about this is notice how impersonal it is. Uh, as I said before, it's like there's a big keep out sign. Do not enter sign on the side of the mountain that says, look, don't, don't come anywhere close to this. If you go back and you read the passage in the um, uh, Old Testament about what was going on here, you have this storm overtaking the top of the mountain and the flashing of lightning and the, the wind and this, this disembodied voice. Uh, so you have this, this amazing imagery that is kind of, as I said earlier, like a, like a horror movie. So you have this, uh, this very profoundly impersonal kinds of imagery that is taking place here. Uh, there's a quotation by, uh, by William Lane, uh, the person I mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago and when he's talking about this contrast between the old and the new covenant um, he says that you know everything about this this part of the mountain is um, is impersonal it is something that is that is frightening and terrifying the author is building up the imagery and saying that there's there's nothing about this uh, that is inviting. <laughs> Right, So this is what Bill Lane says about it, and then he's going to contrast it with the next part of the passage. Listen to what he says. Uh, every aspect of the... Um, well, actually, when he's talking about the image of the Old Covenant, he talks about the impersonal nature of it. But this is what he says as he moves to the next. He says, Every aspect of the vision provides encouragement for coming boldly into the presence of God. The atmosphere of Mount Zion is festive, the frightening visual imagery of blazing fire, darkness, and gloom fades before the reality of the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. 
the cacophony of whirlwind, trumpet blast, and the sound of words is muted and replaced by the joyful praise of angels in festal gathering. The trembling congregation of Israel gathered solemnly, solemnly at the base of the mountain is superseded by the assembly of those whose names are permanently inscribed in the heavenly archives. An overwhelming impression of the unapproachability of God is eclipsed and in the experience of full access to the presence of God and of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So you have all of this frightening imagery here that you have in the Sinai uh, theophany. You have it replaced with what we find in the second part of the passage. Now just listen to it, and I want to say a word to you about some of the imagery here. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Come to the city of the living God, to myriads of angels in festive gathering. Uh, that term that is translated as in festive gathering uh, is a word that in the ancient world could be used of great celebrations. It could be used in the Old Testament of the uh, festivals, the Jewish festivals, and the joy and the exuberance of, of, about life that you have in those festivals. In the Greco-Roman world, it could be associated with the Olympic Games or the Corinthian Games. You know, people at the, uh, you know, these places that they're, they're excited and they're shouting and that kind of thing. It's that kind of atmosphere. It's not speaking anything against um, reverence. You know, we talk about reverence and worship and that kind of thing. But we also, we ought to have times as New Covenant people where our joy just overflows in what is going on. Let me, let me kind of draw a, a, an analogy for you. Um, one of the uh, things that we had at Union at my university for years is we were at that, we're now part of NCAA 2 and in NCAA 2, I know that's not big time stuff like uh, North Carolina, but, uh, but it, you know, they've gone on and done amazingly well in NCAA too. But back when we were in AIA, uh, we played schools from across North America. In fact, one of the schools real near where we live now, Simon Fraser, we would play them in basketball every year. And the girls' basketball team, I think it was five of the last six years that we were in the, the NAIA, they won the national championship for girls' basketball. I mean, they were fantastic. Mark Campbell, the coach, who's still the coach of the girls' basketball team, is a godly young man who uses basketball not as an end in itself, but as a way to proclaim the gospel to these girls and to disciple them in the faith. He, he's, he's amazing. He's amazing as a basketball coach, but even more amazing as a young uh, Christian man. Uh, but can you imagine coming to one of those national championship games <clears throat> And as you scan the, uh, you know, looking at the, the crowd, I'm sitting up there with my friend Paul Jackson, who was my buddy. We, you and I, for years, we played full-court basketball at noon against the students and stuff like that. And uh, so Paul and I are up there in the stands. It's down to the last five seconds of the game, and, and we're behind by one point. And we've just gotten fouled, and, and the girl at the line has one and one. <laughs> See, I love this because you even get my athletic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get my athletic references, okay? So, so she she shoots and she she sinks the first one. The, the score is tied, and you can imagine just 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 the eruption that would take place in the gym. 
and she shoots and she hits the second basket and it, I mean the place just explodes and as you're scanning the crowd you look up there and Paul Jackson and I are sitting there in the stands and Paul turns to me and says well that was meaningful <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I turn yeah. back to him and I say Paul I think I think I'm going to go home and meditate on this for a little while <laughs> <laughs> no. is that what would happen in that case no, no. No, it's not what would happen. I, I mean, we would be we would be yeah. screaming and jumping, shouting, and, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that that when someone comes to Christ in the new covenant, that the angels are excited. <laughs> they're in festive assembly. They're in festive gathering because of what Christ has worked out in the new covenant with people. That's an amazing image. He says that you come to the assembly of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Normally, only Christ is called the firstborn. This is plural. We are the heirs. All of us who are part of the new covenant are the heirs because of what Christ has done. The names of the firstborn written in heaven. To God who is the judge of all, and this is God as vindicator. This is the God as judge who will say, uh, this person is my person. I, I acknowledge them as my person. And to Jesus, well, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. Remember back in Genesis, the story of Cain and Abel? What happens when God comes and confronts Cain because he's killed his brother? And he says to him, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And in essence, what is implied there is what Abel's blood was crying out was a price must be paid, judgment must be done. And Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because it says the price has been paid. The price has been paid. Not guilty. Not guilty. Now, on that basis, I want us to uh, go back to uh, before the throne. And I want us to all stand together and we're going to conclude our time by singing this song that's based on the book of Hebrews. Based on the book of Hebrews. And as much as you can sing this authentically from your heart, then let's sing this uh, together if we can. Do do a number of you know this? Do you know this Mm -hmm. hymn? You, you do? Okay, so we're, we're in good shape here. And Lord God, I pray that in Jesus' name you would bless these people. Thank you so much for the time that we've had together this week. Lord, bless them as the, the body of Christ here in this area. Build up your church, Lord. Help us to deeply understand the things that we've talked about this week, and more importantly, help us to live them out. Uh, we pray that we would do that to your glory. Lord, we pray that we would do that to the advancement of your kingdom. And we ask for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Um, hard, to, hard to improve on that ending. So, um, mainly just wanted to uh, thank everyone that helped make this week possible. Um, first and foremost, all of you, thanks for signing up for this course. Thanks for giving up a week of your mornings and many of you lunches and evenings to join us this week. Um, I've loved getting to know some of you better and some of you to get to know for the first time. So thank you for being with us this week. 
Um, also, thank you to all the um, partner ministries and churches that helped make this possible this week. Uh, InterVarsity, grad and faculty, Hank Carlson, who's not with us today, but uh, was a key, key partner. Um, also, Chapel Hill Bible Church. Thank you to all the Bible Church folks and Matt Smith. Um, to Blacknell and Dave Dunderdale. Um, thank you to everyone from Blacknell who's been a part of this week. Um, Holy Trinity Anglican Church Chapel Hill. Uh, several folks from there. Thank you. Uh, and David Hyman. And also Holy Trinity Church Raleigh. Um, and a special shout out to all the Raleigh folks who are commuting this week. Um, doing I 40 traffic. You know, five, days, <laughs> five days in a row. Um, thank you. Also, Carl Umble. Um, Carl has been, especially behind the scenes, just a crucial partner in kind of designing this week and thinking about the best way to structure it and format it. So, Carl, thanks for um, all of your help. Uh, you know, who to, who to write the thank you letters to for lunch. Um, and those folks have chosen to remain anonymous, um, as well as the folks who uh, kind of especially helped make this week possible. Um, but there were some, uh, some generous benefactors who kind of made this week possible. So thank you. Um, for They knew who they are, and I'll thank them on behalf of our whole group. I had one or two folks ask, but if anyone does want to write a thank you letter, I can deliver to that to them privately. So you can just leave it here, uh, mail to us, and we'll get it to them. Um, finally, last but not least, thank you, George uh, and Regent. This has been really special, and uh, I've been taking this all week and can't wait to uh, you know, use the material and the things we've been thinking about this week in teaching and with students this year. So. Um, thank you. You've been a blessing to all of us. So thank you. Um, it is. It's hard to improve on uh, before the throne. So we're going to close um, with the words of Hebrew. This this is the benediction that comes at the end of Hebrews. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is from Hebrews 13 uh, verses 20 and 21. So um, you can just pause and kind of take in all this week, and we'll close with this benediction. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 Thank you. Go in peace.